And we are back. You are listening to ComedySchoolsRadio.com. My name is Tony Visick. This is This American Podcast Comedy Edition. And if uh, the gods of electricity and telecommunications are working properly on the line, we have Rich Scheidner. Rich, speak so we know that you're there. Yeah, how do you, how do you have, Tony? Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It we, is. We've got you fine. We've got you loud and clear. Let me speak to the engineer. Is he clear as a bell? He's coming through clear. He's coming through. Good morning, Red. Yeah. Good morning. Like a whistle in the train tunnel, we hear you clearly. Um, (laughs) So, happy Thanksgiving, buddy. I hope you had a uh, a marvelous Thanksgiving. Um, I did, man. I did. Fantastic. And uh, we want to talk to you today about, um, uh, you know, uh, it's hard enough to get people to read books nowadays. And... uh, then it's hard enough to get people to write books. And then, and then when you actually know someone who wrote a book, I will tell you this. I read your book, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. I, a lot of my friends are not beginning to write books, and I'm losing friends because they will call me and go, they'll send me the book and go, you re- have you read it? And I haven't read their books, and then I just stop taking their calls. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've read your book, uh, Kicking Through the Ashes. Uh, my life is a stand-up com- a stand-up in the 1980s comedy boom. It's available on Amazon.com. Is that correct? That's right. All right. So you wrote this. It has an introduction by Bill Maher. You were present. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty much at the beginning of the stand-up comedy boom, when there were no comedy clubs, and that whole idea was just farming up. Were you there, like pre-stand-up yeah, comedy club? Yeah. You know. Yeah, I started doing comedy in Washington, D.C. in 77, Tony, and there were no comedy clubs at all. And then this guy started a, a bar, uh, started doing stand-up comedy. It's so Louis Black, Kevin Rooney, Ron Zimmerman, Bill Mass, John Hayman, all these guys, we all sort of... A friend of mine was, I was in law school, and she showed me this ad in the... Like a little little thing in the, in the, in the classified, saying, if you want to do comedy, come to this bar. And she showed it to me, and I went there. And so I met these guys. So there were these scenes... Like this, where we started doing stand-up comedy there, and like, and and I think it was like June or July of '77. I'd been doing it for about six months up to that point, just going around, going to coffee houses and all that. So there were these scenes in um in, in certain cities, like Boston had a scene in the set late '70s, Chicago had one from the mid '70s on, and and uh, and there was one in Houston with Hicks and those guys, and Sam Kennison and those guys down there. They had a scene in Houston, and there was one in Philly. There were a couple of different places around the country that had teams, other than New York and L.A., where they had the big comedy clubs. So there were no clubs. So, cl- so, yeah. so, so, so when I got to New York in 79, nobody was making any money, unless you were opening act for some group or something, you know, unless you were opening act for some singer in Vegas. But nobody was making any money. The young comics weren't making any money. It started in 80. The clubs really started popping in 80. So that was the goal pre-clubs was to do 15 or 20 minutes uh, uh, in front of a singer or to be an opening act for a band. Or so I, I don't think anybody was yeah. ever doing an opening acts on Broadway. Nobody was going up and doing 15 before Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. <laughs> no, 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 that no, could have no. changed the whole thing if, if, if it would have went that way. Instead, <laughs> instead of opening up for you know Diana Ross, you're opening up for uh, you know t- a Tennessee for Streetcar Named Desire. Um, then the clubs started. I mean, how did that come about? Were you one of the first ones working uh, a lot of the clubs? Yeah. You know, because I, I, I'd been doing like a lot of work opening up for rock bands and I'd been, I'd, I'd gotten a lot of work and I was, and I was, again, um, I just always liked the smell of new material and I was always constantly writing. So when they opened, uh, I'm, I remember this, I was in 
Florida, there was a the second comedy club on the East Coast, Payne Comedy Club, was a Fort Lauderdale comic strip. And it opened like in January of 1980. Right? Yeah. So I'm down there with, with Kelly Rogers, Carol Eifer, Joe Bolster, Mark Schiff, myself. We're all, and I'm like just the MC because they couldn't put me down there as a regular act because it was so early opening the club and I wasn't a regular comic strip act. But I was Carol's boyfriend, so she talked him into making me the MC and paying me half what everybody else got. Now we're talking about uh, Carol Leifer, who later on went to write Carol for the Leifer, Seinfeld right. show. Okay, right, okay. Right, right. So I was her boyfriend, so she talked to club owners, and they're like, well, we can't put him down. He's not a, you know, we got all these other comic strip acts that have to go down there first. I was a prude, but I wasn't, my main club was the improv. Anyway, so we're down there, and there was a, there was a phone in the condo. This is how early it was. They had a phone in the condo. And Kelly Rogers is on the phone, and he motions for me to come over. And he's got the phone to his chest, you know, and he goes, whatever this guy has, tell him you can do. And I get on the phone, the guy goes, yeah, I've got this club up in Ottawa, Canada, and I need a comic king to do two 45-minute sets, two separate 45-minute sets. Can you do it? I go, yeah. <laughs> I give his phone back to Kelly, and he hangs up. I go, <laughs> I got like half hour. If they buy everything, if they laugh at everything I do, I got a half hour top. He says, don't worry about it. You're filling it, don't worry. You'll do it. And I was like writing like furiously, and I get up there and I pull it off. You know, my strategy was I just do everything I had in the first show, and in the second show I just ran around the room like I was that Red Skelton or something. I was just <laughs> going crazy, just doing everything I could think of, and improv with the audience. You know what I mean? I'm just trying every new bit that I ever thought of. And at the end of the week, the guy goes, "That was great. Listen, this guy on the phone wants to talk to you." And, I, and I'm getting paid by the guy. And I get on the phone. This guy goes, "Hey, I'm Ernie Butler from Montreal. I heard you did great in Ottawa. Can you come to my club this week?" I went, just come, just come right now, just come over. So I went right from Ottawa to Montreal. I swear, at the end of that week, same thing. I, I'm getting paid. He goes, hey, this guy wants to talk to you. I get on the phone. It's Mark President Toronto. I, I need you this week. Can you go over? I heard you're great. And I went out and came back like, you know, four four weeks. I went out, you know, to do two weeks in Fort Lauderdale. And I came back like, you know, five weeks later, a headliner. That was it. I'm a headliner now. <laughs> you know, the club started opening, and they go, can you do the time? They had the audiences. You know, the places are packed, because it was all new. It was, a, it was like the hot new thing, these comedy clubs. So who could hold the audience? Who could do the time? And there were a lot of comics in, in New York that could get away with, because these showcase clubs, all you had to do was 15, 20 minutes. Sure. So a lot of these guys didn't really expand. So they only had 15, 20, or half of that time was subway material. Or if they had a half an hour, half of it was talking about New York City. And wasn't so that when a, they got out there? Go ahead. Yeah. Wasn't that like, yeah, when wasn't, they got out there? They got trouble. Wasn't that, yeah? That was an issue for a lot of comics who worked primarily uh, in Los Angeles at the Comedy Store or the Melrose Improv or worked the clubs in New York City. That when they got out in America, um, uh, they had difficult time because. Uh, I think one time you said to me a long time ago, you go, you want to be careful of just being funny on Melrose. Unfortunately for me, I was funny every place except Melrose. <laughs> 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 Cleveland, they yeah, loved me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you, because you had an interesting uh, early life in, in that um, you uh, were born and raised in uh, the Philadelphia area, correct? Yeah, yeah, South Jersey. That's right. That's yeah, right. but then um, at the same time, every summer, your family was going down to, I believe, North Carolina? North Carolina. I spent a lot of summers down there in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, uh, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, a place called uh, Banner Elk was the name of the town. Actually, so it's, it's actually east of, I mean, west of Boone. It's right by the Tennessee border, way up in the mountains, small little place. Yeah, I spent a lot of summers there. 
So you, um, so there's a lot of comics I, I've spoken with who there is some sort of break in the continuity of their childhood, uh, you know, where they, uh, you know, <laughs> You know, where, and, and I had a, a similar break where we moved from the inner city when I was 10 out to the country and literally had people come, where are you from the city? So that break in continuity can be very problematic. As, as Do you, was part of that, part of what made you a stand-up, you think, is this sort of odd thing of coming from one culture and then being shoved into another culture and go, go outside and play. Come back in four hours. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what, I mean, I, I don't think that made me a stand-up. It, it, it was one of those things that made me tough because... When I went down there, every, I mean, the first, I remembered, I'd, I'd get out of that same thing, go out there and play, and you get out there, and it'd be always going to Yankee, and I'd have to fight one of them. I'd always have to fight one of them. And once you fought one, you know, and they go, okay, he's tough, he's, 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 he's not going to back down, he's not going to run back inside. All right, now we play for the rest of the summer. But <laughs> I think for me, it was a different, you know, my family dynamic is why I'm a stand-up comic. You know, I, I, I realized there was this picture, my my mom got pulled out and it was a, and it was my favorite aunt her one woman who raised my mom and her and my sister and my brothers and me and we're all and i'm in like a baseball uniform and we're facing the camera somebody's taking a picture and everybody's laughing at me and i looked at, i looked at the picture my brother was there and i go how come everybody's laughing at me and my brother said you probably cracked a joke <laughs> and my mom said, thank right right you know i was like 15 i go really and my mom said oh thank god you were funny Thank God you got a sense of humor. And I talked to my mom afterwards, and I realized I was like the guy making her laugh. I had to make her laugh. You know, it was, it was tough marriage, my mom and dad. It was tough. Yeah. And she was from North Carolina, and she was up there, and she never really had friends in Pennsville. She always talked a little estranged. And uh, she was depressed a lot. And it was kind of my job to make her laugh. I look at And my dad was a funny guy. He was a very funny guy. I met, I met both your mother and father, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he loved comedy. I mean, he'd go around, he'd go to clubs, nightclubs, up in Cherry Hill, uh, down Atlantic City. He'd go to these all-black, he told me once he went to all-black clubs in Atlantic City to see Moms Maidley and Red Fox. This is back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So he was into it. You know, he was into comedy. So I could not help but notice that, you know. I mean, when a comic would come on Ed Sullivan, my dad was like glued, man. I was like, do not talk while this guy's talking. I, you know, do not make a sound while just comics on TV. You know, I, I, I got the importance of it, you know. I, uh, I, I picked up a little of that electric arc in the 80s. Um, uh, you and I stayed at your parents' house in Florida sometime in the 80s. Uh, we were both down there, and we were having dinner. And, and I found my I, I, I found your dad to be a very likable guy. I liked him a lot, and, and I started talking to him. And, and he was staring at you, and you were staring at him. And you both had this look in your eye like, yeah, come on. And as, as I was talking to your dad, and he was, and also you stopped. You go, don't encourage him, don't talk to him, don't encourage. Him. <laughs> and your dad, your dad just laughed and looked you right in the eye and go, hey, I got you. <laughs> your friend likes me. <laughs> they, all, they always did. You know, my dad and I had a pro, we had a tough. We had this. We, my dad and I had I know at least two fistfights I can remember. Yeah, and it did not go well for me. He was a he was a farmer you know he, yeah. was a, he grew up on a farm my dad was like you know what i mean i think you were the first guy ever told this concept to me tony you said those are show muscles remember we were at a gym someplace yeah this guy goes, those are show muscles yeah you know and but farmers have real muscles yeah and they have working muscles and my dad was like a rock man he was he was you know and i realized he's only 19 years older than me like your dad you know yeah so when i was 15 you know facing off with my dad for the first time he's only 34 <laughs> <laughs> 
I look back and go, no wonder he kicked my butt right out the door, man. <laughs> and then I then I squared off again with him, you know, a couple of years later. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, I didn't have a chance. I mean, he was like 5'9", but he was rock solid, man. I seem to remember his broad shoulders, long arms, like, you know, those boxer arms, that, like those ape arms that could just <sighs> swing out and pop you. You know, and uh, I, I, we used to bail. We used to bail hay in the summer, and I remember, you know, the first time I was out there, and I couldn't even pick up. You know, bales of hay were like fifty, sixty pounds, whatever they were. You know, and my dad would just be throwing them like nothing, man, just tossing him and his brother. You know, just and I'd be like struggling. They'd be like, you know, go on, boy, get your ass into it. You know, I'd be like, <laughs> one every five minutes would come for me onto the wagon. You know. Yeah, you know, you you make a, an allusion to it in the book. You were the one. I don't know if I heard it at the dinner table that night or that week because uh, uh, I think we had dinner two or three times. And you went, we're we're going to go stay someplace else. Um, but uh, where your father, <laughs> your father used to goad you about that your job wasn't really work, and uh, he said he goes, you only work an hour a night. And I seem to remember, I could be wrong. You may have told me this, but I met him. Your dad go, you only work an hour a night. And you shot back, it's a tough hour. So um, that's right. That's right. That's right, man. You make allusion that's to right. it in the book. You know, that it's what yeah. I what I enjoyed. Yeah. I enjoyed this book so very much. And what I uh, I a little prejudice on my part because so many of the stories I was around when they were taking place, or some of the stories you had told me when I first met you about the seventies and eighties. I would ask you questions, you know, about stand up before I got involved in the comedy business. So it was it was a, a, a real joy to see so many of these things that had been told to me, you know, in casual conversation or that I had experienced because I was near you or over your house or know when it was taking place. To see them now put the memory. I've told people that another thing I love about this book for someone's going to read it who doesn't know you, okay, is that, um, you know, we're going to start seeing, we've already seen some books on the history of comedy and stuff. I like this because it's a first-person memoir that is, a combination of a great story of a man's life. It's also a great uh, um, uh, history of the modern era of stand-up comedy. Okay, and it's also a great tutorial to any stand-up comic. So you seem to be able to combine a great narrative of a man's life, uh, a history book telling the history of comedy, and a tutorial in a very flawless way. So how difficult was it for you to write? The, did well, you shoot this out, or was there a lot of stress in writing this book? You know. <laughs> First of all, I want you to write an Amazon review. That is, that is exactly what I'd hoped for and, and what I tried to do. All those things that you just said because, yeah, it was very stressful. It was, first of all, I, I had cut out, you know, originally it was like, you know, 500 pages. I go, look, I'm not Bruce Springsteen. I can't put out a memoir. Like David Halberstam. Cut stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the best and brightest of stand-up comedy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I had to cut out stuff that was redundant or didn't fly, but I wanted to cover every aspect of what it takes to do stand-up. I wanted that in there. So there's a thing on heckling or a thing on writing jokes or a thing on joke thievery or every aspect of that. So you write. I wanted it to be not a tutorial, but if you read it, you go, I got an idea of what it takes to do stand-up comedy. I know I got an idea of every aspect of it. And uh, and you or definitely... Talk shows, whatever. I, I often tell people, I go, um, that you know more about stand-up comedy than anyone I know, including me. And, and uh, um, so much of uh, what I share with young comics, I realize oftentimes as I'm sharing with young comics, and I, and I, I will always, uh, I, I always mention your name, you know, I, I don't go, hey, I thought this up on my own, um, that it's something that I, I learned from you. Uh, I want to talk about a couple other things real quickly. Um, 
What are the your stand up? Uh, what was the first time I ever saw anybody do a full set an hour and a half? I saw you at a place called Igby's in Los Angeles. I had seen many stand up comics doing showcase sets at the store and at the Melrose Improv. Mm-hmm. I was always amazed at a couple of things. You were, and you you may disagree with this. You were the guy who came up with a joke on Monday that everybody was doing on Wednesday, and you were also the guy that, as everybody was almost getting a laugh off of something, found a way to get the laugh off of it. You were always one step ahead. There was a rare comic back in the early 60s named Adam Keefe who was described to me, and I, I had a chance to meet him. He was like a Greenwich Village comic, and Adam was that comic. But you were that comic. Also, you always went against the grain and were very, and this is probably more what I want to talk about, uh, very... um how do I put this, uh, uh, stealthy, you are the first male feminist comic I came across when everybody else is doing, uh, men are w- smarter than women, but then how come women uh, once a month are screaming and crying? You were able to get men to laugh about their, their uh, own chauvinism without them feeling bad about themselves. And I, I bring yeah. this up because at your reading, I was at your reading a couple of weeks ago, and, and someone had misread it. I think a lot, because you're big, and you're loud, and you're a dude. You're a dude, That's right. and you're on stage, but at the same time, if you listen to the jokes, they're very feminist jokes. Uh, you always take right. the underdog side without making the overlord feel like crap. Well, there you go, Tony. I mean, again, you've nailed it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered and I, 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 that you noticed it, and I... I mean, look, I've known you a long time. We're like best friends, so I mean, I, I'm I'm honored that you. Yeah, that. that ruins the interview. Now I wanted to sound like I didn't know. <laughs> Go ahead. But I can't. But I can't look. That's who I was. I mean, look, I grew up. My mom was the underdog in the house. I got to be honest with you. you know, I, my job was to, for whatever good or bad, my job was to protect my mom in a lot of ways growing up. So that's my attitude. That was my thing. And so, and I felt more comfortable taking the pie in the face of the guy. And I think. Somebody else pointed this out. There, one of the reasons why I could do exactly what you just said I could do, because I was a guy. It wasn't like I was up there mincing about or or, or shaky about who I was as a as a guy. I'm a guy. You know, that's it. I played sports. I I, I wasn't afraid to get in a tumble with a guy, another guy. So that guys recognize that. You know, they recognize that. So I, I think I could do that. But look, I also wrote in the book. I was on the wrong side of. You know, in terms of the, the zeitgeist of the country, you know, this whole thing with Tim Allen, you know, remember when, when Tim Allen like just blew past, he just like blew up, like huge. And he was a masculinist. And there was this whole movement away from sort of the feminism or the Allen Alda period or whatever, where guys were like, okay, we've had enough of this feminist stuff, or the, you know? Yeah. And, and we wanna, you know, we're gonna, we're, we're tired of being put down as guys. We wanna be guys and guys are gonna be guys. And I, like you said, I did not have that kind of vibe, you know. And Tim Allen had that vibe, and I think that's what made him huge. I mean, he 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 was on the right side of that. So, I, did I pay a price for it? I don't know. I don't care. I don't care. I, just, I couldn't do anything different than who I was anyway. Now you told me that one time we were talking about something. You said, "You look, I just got to be me, and that's it." And that's that's the beauty of stand-up comedy that you can. Um, I find for so many um, people that want to enter into the stand-up comedy world. They come and go, I want to express myself. And then they go, I watch them, they go on stage and they act like somebody else. They go, you're not expressing yourself. <laughs> you're acting you know, like... You, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you, you said something else I wanted to point out. Because you said like, you know, I was always like a, a little bit ahead or trying to grab a thing. 
like I said, I, I always looked at myself as a writer first, and mm-hmm. a performer second, and I like my performing was the delivery system. It wasn't as good as others or whatever, but it was what it was. I, I love to write. I love to get it into it. And it was always looking for that other area where nobody's doing a joke about. And that's just a natural thing. And I remember one time I did, when I did that Canyon bit, and there was a thing in there about power windows and power door locks, which were brand new at the time in the, in the mid-80s. They were like brand new option for cars that were regularly optioned, you know, like that and they were getting popular. And I did those jokes and I came off stage and Jerry Seinfeld came up to me and said, ah, you beat me to the joke on the power door locks, you nailed it. <laughs> and I, I remember just going, all right, I beat Jerry, because Jerry is one of those guys, man. He was the same thing, he's always looking for that. What is nobody else doing a joke about? And where can I beat him to the, you know what I mean? Sure. And that's to me, was part of the game. I mean, that was part of the game. I mean, who wants to go just do joke? you know? Hack is like, there's all sorts of versions of hack to me, but one of them is you're just doing jokes that you already know where the joke is. You're just doing a version of it, a twist of it. Yeah. Um, you like know, the thrill is finding something nobody else has got an attitude. Yeah, that is. That you're absolutely right. You know, I've told people if you can take, you know, the joke. You know, there there's a movement sometime, and you and and it's it's not a new movement. You, you see it every once in a while. You know, um, every few years where you'll get. Uh, comics go, well, I don't want to tell jokes. And I go, well, I don't know why you... I don't want to... You're just writing jokes. And I go, it is the most powerful piece of literature in the English language. We are in the only business where you can cause someone to lose control of their bodily functions and they will thank you. Mm. And, and, you know... We're, That's so, a great point. That's a great point. Someone will come up to you. I mean, there's that phrase, I peed myself a little. And people go, I laughed so hard, I peed myself a little. There's no other business. You can't go to if, if yeah. a therapist made you pee yourself. You go. I'm I'm going to I'm going to contact uh, the ethics committee. You know, if your doctor does yeah, something, yeah, yeah. you know, works on your back or something, and then you you become incontinent, you go. Thank you, doctor. But for us, yeah. the the joke to be able to take seven or eight or nine or hopefully three or four or five or hopefully one word and change someone's total attitude and to change their That's body right. language is one of the most stunning things to do. And I always admired your 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 work at making sure that your jokes were so well crafted, you know, so, um, yeah. And if, you know what, Tony, another thing, another thing is you, you pointed out there, it, it's like, you can call it anything you want, but they're doing jokes. And they go like, we yeah. don't do jokes. And I got that story in there about, about, you know, uh, seeing more Amsterdam. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's at, can, down in Cantor's. Go, yeah. Yeah. And people go like, well, I, I don't do jokes like you. We don't do. It. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'll tell you something. I can watch anybody. I don't care what they're doing. Story channel, whatever. When I can see the setup and the punchline in that in that story, when they're getting laughs, when you stop talking and the audience laughs, you just did a joke. I don't care what you want to call it, you know. But there's a joke there. There's a setup and a punchline. It's almost as silly as someone. You know, I, when people say that, I go, "Well, thank God you don't write horror movies." I'm just gonna write this movie and let the audience decide where to be scared. You know, <laughs> the guy who writes a horror movie goes here. They're gonna scream. Here they're gonna cry. Here they're gonna poop themselves. Here they're gonna run out of the theater. I mean, that's their goal is to scare the hell out of you. Our goal is to make people laugh. Um, that's right. I want to move on to something else uh, quickly. If I could still keep you for a couple more minutes, I have two more things I want to speak okay. with you about. And sure. one is um, you left. You left live performance for almost a decade. For almost a yeah. decade, uh, sometime in the early 90s, um, I remember speaking with you, yeah. and you go, I'm going to be a writer, and I go, well, you can be both, and you went, no, I'm going to be a writer, and um, um, Roseanne, who is oftentimes uh, controversial when people talk about her, gave you a job on the spot, 
and you began writing for her show, but you left live performance for almost a decade. Yeah. So besides what's going to be the quick and silly answer, I, you know, I did this for the money, what made you come back to live performance? Besides the fact going, hey, I, I can't sell insurance, I'm too old. What made you come back to live performance? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was part of it. Well, Tony, I, I, I didn't realize how much I got from doing stand-up. You know, we always talk about what we give the audience. You know, we give the audience, we make them laugh. Like you said, we change their attitude. But I got so much mental well-being from it. I got so much, uh, you know, that connection. I wrote about it in the book. I just, you know, the, the connection I get from the audience, I don't get normally walking around every day. I feel a little off-centered, a little estranged from the world at large. Mm-hmm. When I go up on that stage, I feel connected to people in a way I'm never connected to strangers ever. And so um, it helps me a lot of, in a lot of ways. That's why I came back. I didn't realize how much it helped my mental well-being. Well, we were uh, fortunate enough to um, be one of the first places to book you back for a full hour. I don't know if we were the first place. And uh, I knew how much you wanted to come back and try to do an hour because we booked into a Dave and Buster's. So, um, <laughs> and you, 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 hey, 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 Tony, you booked me back a lot of stuff when I first came back. You were important to get me back in there. And the Dave and Buster's was as goofy as it was. It was important. It helped. It was. It was every little bit of it was an ego boost. Every bit of a little confidence builder. All right. Look, I know you got to go. I know you have a, an appointment uh, in in a few moments. <laughs> uh, there's two things I want to mention. Okay. So the last yeah. chapter chapter of the book is not the last chapter in the story uh, because the book kind of ends around the time that you stopped doing stand up, and uh, there's a whole new decade to write about, and you're a voice that needs to be heard. So I know you've got more material, and I look forward to a uh, second follow-up book to this. And then finally, uh, I, uh, this is, I, I've had a couple books where I was in the dedication, I'm proud to say. This is the first book where I'm at, at least mentioned. And uh, I, uh, I gather about two to four lines in your book. Where, and I'm proud, of, I'm proud of the title you gave me, which was a um, drug-addicted drug dealer who was about to become a laugh-addicted <laughs> laugh dealer. And I can tell the story, or you can tell the story of how we first met, and I prefer that you tell it. Oh, uh, okay. Well, what, here's, what I, here's what I remember. You may have said, one of the ways I met you was uh, uh, you were in the audience, and I was on stage, and I'd just gotten sober, and, and uh, uh, you were a little ahead of me there on that, on that trail. And I, I Six just got weeks. sober, and I was having a hard time performing. <laughs> I was having a hard time performing without the alcohol and drugs, and I'd get angry, and I'd throw the mic down, I'd storm off, and one night I was on stage doing an angry rant, and nobody was laughing. No, I mean, there was like 200 people in the Melrose Improv just sitting there staring at me as I ran and angry, and you burst out with a laugh, and I turned <laughs> to you, I didn't know who you were. I said, what are you laughing at? <laughs> it was, what are you laughing at, buddy? <laughs> and you're like, you're like, well, it's a comedy club, man, I don't know. <laughs> I actually said to you, I look at you, I got a shrug and went, I think you're funny. I thought, all right, well, fuck him. So, um. <laughs> and then, and then, I also remember I was working out at the Sports Connection, and uh, we might have met like, very briefly before that or whatever, but I really didn't know you. And I'm working at the Sports Connection, and I'm doing my usual workout where I'm just slamming weights real fast and everything. And you walked over to me, he goes, you know, you're doing that too fast to get any benefit out of it. <laughs> and I went like, that's the story of my life. <laughs> well, we had met one time. We had met one time before that, and I'll tell you, is that uh, Claudia Lanau, uh, who was a friend of mine at the time, came up to me one time. Uh, she'd heard me talking a couple of times and said, you should try stand-up. I was, I, was, I was trying to get back into acting, I would get into acting, period. She goes, you should try stand-up. And I go, 
I don't know how any of that works. And she goes, well, my dad is the owner of a club. I go, what club? She goes, the improv. She goes, I know a guy that can help you. I said, okay. So on a Thursday afternoon, she told me to meet her at the Melrose Improv. And I come down the Melrose Improv. And as you walk in, there's kind of like a half wall. And then around there, there's the back of the bar. And as I come around the corner, I'd seen you just the night or a couple nights before where you'd yelled at me. And you're standing there holding the bar like you're getting ready to tear the, tear the railing off. It's Thursday afternoon at like noon. And she goes, this guy can help you. I go, I look at her and I go, Tony, I said, that guy's nuts. I said, I saw him the other night. He just screams at people. He just, she goes, he's very funny. He's going, I go, no, he, he I go, a, a guy, I thought he was going to hit me from the stage. I ain't talking to him. And I walked away. I didn't, I didn't remember this, Tony. I don't remember this. This is so funny. This is so funny. I don't remember this story. I looked right at Tony. I went, that guy's nuts. <laughs> And then I think we met. I come and say, "Hey, how you doing?" And then I, I, I gotta get away from this dude, man. This guy's whacked out. And then we had some mutual friends. And then there was the time at the gym. And then yeah, we were gonna have sports connection. And you were and uh, always will be uh, one of my dearest friends. Uh, and always a big influence in my personal life and a big influence in my uh, comedic career. And um, although I don't know that you want to take responsibility for that. Um, like like likewise, brother. Likewise, you written jokes for me. I still do. I I still do. Well, I love I love I writing. Still do. I I'll love you, writing. I'll give you one of the quick. I'll give you one of the quick ones. The difference between single people and married people, just the way they leave their house. Single people go out. Married people get out. That still gets a big laugh. God, I forgot I wrote that joke. But yes, you did. Uh, yeah. I got about a half a dozen of your jokes. I still do. And that you know that to me that was the you know, I was trying. You and I talked about this one time, and and just real quick talking about comedians and. Um, because uh, I, I teach a comedy workshop, which is, you know, um, one step below pedophile in a lot of people's minds. I don't care. You know, we've had a lot of success with it. But you shared something with me one time that that changed the way I taught, too. You go, all these people that teach comedy, Tony, to, oh, I teach them laughs per minute. You go, I want to write a joke that makes people laugh for an entire minute. And that changed, the way, right. I, it changed the way I ran my writing workshop. And then I think, oh, really? yeah, I did because I, I went, all right, instead of just trying to write a little bibbity bobbity bibbity bob, you know, thinking it changed the way I approached the students in that, well, you know, the students, it would start them out easy. I go, no, let's get the hard stuff out of the way. Learn how to write a great, because if you can write one great joke, the day you write that great joke that people steal, people buy, audiences respond to so hard that, you know, right. they, that opens up whatever that door is in the mind to a bunch of other jokes. But if you're writing a bunch right. of little bibbity bobbity jokes that are like, you know, dingy, 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 it never leads to the great joke. So it changed my approach to it. And then I think you and I joked about the real goal. Let's face it, Rich. The honest goal is to go up and tell one joke that people laugh at for 45 minutes. You tell one joke, <laughs> you walk off, you go outside, you have a smoke, you have a soda, you walk in at the end, of the, and they're still laughing, you go, give them my pay. One joke, to, to write that joke. And that's when I wrote that joke that, get, you know, uh, go out, get out. I'm going, how can I make like an atom bomb as short as possible that has the biggest explosion? So I'm honored that you still do the joke. Um, I probably do a few <laughs> jokes a year that I haven't paid for. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what's a little theory between friends? There you go. The name of the book, ladies and gentlemen, and I didn't, you know, there's so many great stories in here, and if you're, if you're an aspiring comic, this, it, it, oftentimes aspiring comic, is there a good book out there? And um, I go, there's not a, a lot of good, I go, a lot of people that wrote them, 
I'm not putting them down. It's not that they're bad people. They weren't that funny or they weren't funny at all. This is a great book if you're an aspiring comic written by a funny man who will give you a lot of information. It's a great book if you want to know the history of, uh, of a, a cultural phenomenon in America. And it's a great story of a man's journey through life. It is called Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life as a Stand-Up in the 1980s Comedy Boom by Rich Scheidner. Introduction by Bill Maher. Rich, I want to thank you. It's yeah. available on Amazon.com. And we'll be doing a blast about it next week when we send out our email blast. So you'll be able to find out about it there as well. Also, go to our websites or Facebook pages, and you'll be able to get the information where to purchase this. I'll tell you how much I love this book. I was there for half the stories, and I bought the damn thing. And, Rich, when I bought it, I, am, I automatically got signed up for Amazon Prime. This book didn't cost me 24 bucks. It cost me 124 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, brother. Have a great morning. I will speak with you soon. Thank you. Bye. And thanks, Shirley, for the laughter. Bye. Bye. Well... There you go. Uh, you know, if you um, if you ever wonder sometimes why you're doing something, you go, why am I doing this? Why do I actually get up when I don't have to and drive to an office that I don't really need and uh, do a podcast that maybe one person listens to or 100 people listen to? Uh, that's why. Because uh, I get an opportunity to um, do what we just did there and have that wonderful interview with my good friend, Rich Scheidner. What a great interview with Rich. I just, you know. Yeah, he's such an honest guy. Yeah, he is. He, 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 he truly is. We were only going to go 15 minutes, you know, uh, and we ended up going um, quite well. We went, and you know what? We could have went, went two hours with him, yeah. you know. So uh, I didn't do a lot of the stuff from the book because I was, I th- you can read the book, you know. So we, we, we touched on the book. There's so much in there. It's such a fun read. I urge anyone, man, to pick that book up. All right, I'm uh, knocking uh, equipment around in the studio. We're going to You know, you did have a couple people responding about him being on air. Yeah. And listening in quite a few actually uh-huh. um, live. And this will go out, you know, download it. Download later. Yeah. But they were just wondering if he was going to be in Arizona again soon or I ain't booking him. He wants too much money now. <laughs> He's too big for you. Well, you know what? You know what? We, we, we might. You know what, folks? That was a joke. Uh, uh, we have we've booked him. We've booked him into uh, various venues, um, and um, uh, we might talk about that. We might talk about bringing Rich back into Arizona sometime in 2017. Let's see how the response is on that. Uh, and uh, you know what? You'll have to listen to the show, and we'll keep you posted. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll be talking to, from WeAreMovieGeeks.com, Sam Moffat. You're listening to This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com.